your Bible should already be open to where we had our scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I will once again read verses 9 through 27 and uh, reset the context for us to help us. As I mentioned last week at the end, uh, looking at verse 27, I was going to be spending some time on the word disqualified, and that's what we're going to be doing uh, this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as always, we are so grateful, Father, for so many things that you've given to us. In spite of, Father, of the circumstances we may find ourselves in, and all of us, Father, are in some circumstances that are the same, and for some of us, we are experiencing things maybe in a much more dramatic way or in a, in a worse way, depending on our health and varying things. But, Father, we, we have much to thank you for. We know, Lord, that you're always with us. We know, Lord, that you are in control. We know, Lord, that we can always turn to you for help. We know, Father, that you will continue to give to us wisdom and mercy. And again, Father, as always, we thank you for the future that we have, the future that's been guaranteed to us because of Christ and because of what he's accomplished on the cross. And so, Father, this morning, as we now turn our attention to your word, we ask that, Father, that you would give to us insight and understanding, that we would have clarity of thought, that you will enable us to understand and to grasp what Paul is seeking to communicate to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand how the word applies to our life, to the way that we think, to the way that we act, to the way that we uh, understand life around us, to uh, even the decisions that we make. We ask, Lord, that you be honored by the attention and the effort that we give to your word this morning. As always, we do thank you for it, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 19. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under, myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul here in this passage, he is talking about uh, what it is that motivates him when it comes to living the life as a Christian. Uh, again, as we have already covered, there, have been, there are several difficulties here in the church that Paul has addressed I guess we could say that primarily uh, these believers, their focus is on maybe themselves. They're not thinking as they, as they ought to as believers. Uh, they're not thinking as Christians. And so they're not living correctly. They're not making the right types of decisions. They're not being motivated by the right things. And Paul wants to correct and address all of those things. And he does use himself as an example not to bring glory to himself, but uh, he wants them to imitate the way that he's living. 
And so when you look through these verses, he talks about, uh, once again, what we've pointed out before, where he says in verse uh, 19, that he has made himself a servant to all, that he might win more of them. So what he's talking about here, when you kind of work your way through this passage, Paul is talking about the attitude and the approach that he adopts when it comes to working with and uh, being with other people. He's not talking about being fake or or kind of putting on air, so to speak. He's just basically talking about the way he adapts to those around him uh, because of what it is that's most important to him, which is the communication of the gospel and convincing people of the truth of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So he's become a servant that he might win some of them. Uh, to a Jew, he's, he's, he's become more Jewish in, the, in his lifestyle and the way he lives. He doesn't want anything he does in his life to offend them or for them to get caught up in, in, the, in some outward thing that he's forgotten to do uh, to where they then no longer hear what he has to say. So he's going to abide by, I guess you would say, the, the strict Jewish laws, uh, the way of life that, that, they, uh, that they had adopted. He was going to live that way. Uh, to those who were legalistic, he would appear to get along with them. Not that he would change his convictions and become legalistic himself, uh, but he wasn't going to make that the issue. For those who weren't legalistic, he wasn't going to become immoral, but he wasn't going to get caught up again in those things because his goal was to get them to hear and to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. I guess the easiest way to try to explain what he's talking about here, because he does end up saying he's become all things to all men that he might win some. I guess what we would do is think for a moment of how you would uh, conduct yourself when you are with, let's say, your grandchildren or your children or maybe a friend of yours who has a child who's five or six or seven years old. If you began to interact with them, normally what you would do, maybe even without thinking about it, uh, you would be speaking much more gently. You might be much more expressive uh, as you interact with them. Your, your language, your vocabulary would, would shrink. You would use much simpler phrases and simpler words. Uh, you, would, you would take a greater interest in who they are as individuals, uh, really trying to connect with them so you can communicate uh, with them. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the kind of thing. So if when you interact with a five or six-year-old, you're not being someone else. You're being who you are, but you are adapting uh, to that individual for their sake so that you can connect with them and you can uh, communicate with them. So Paul then, as he talks about these things, is leading to, and he's been talking about disciplining the body, disciplining his life, because he's committed to living as a Christian. That's what he's getting at here, is he's committed. In the same way that an athlete is committed to winning the race, not just participating in the race itself and running with strenuous effort, but all the training that goes into, that's required in advance to run in that race, takes a great deal of commitment, and that's what Paul is talking about. There was a Greek professor at Moody Baba College back in the 40s, and speaking on this passage, he said this, The athlete Paul points to went through 10 months of rigorous training, which involved rigid self-denial and much hardship, in order that he might compete in a contest that may last a few minutes or a few hours at the most. And for a prize, a wreath of oak leaves. Should not a Christian be willing to subject himself to just as rigid a discipline? and self-denial in order that he might serve the Lord Jesus in an acceptable manner? The training period of a Greek athlete was a time of separation for him, separation from things which might in their place be perfectly proper, but which would prevent him from running his best race. 
and separation most certainly from things that were of a harmful nature. If we Christians should exercise as much care and self-denial and rigidly hold to a life of separation as did the Greek athlete, what powerful, successful, God-glorifying lives we would live. So I think he makes a great point here. As you really think through what this athlete must go through in living this disciplined life to be able to compete in a race successfully, that is how God wants us to approach life. Now, again, this is not where God or Paul is trying to be a cosmic killjoy and say that you cannot enjoy life and laugh and, and you know, maybe enjoy certain kinds of foods. But he's talking about our passions. He's talking about the desires of our heart. He's talking about the things that maybe we, we naturally we would, would want. And he wants us to make sure that we're not distracted from the main point, which is to glorify Christ and to make him known to others. He wants to make sure that we live that way. And that requires thinking and forethought. We just can't wing it. You just can't live by the city of your pants. We have to live in lives that are informed. We have to live lives that uh, are informed from the word of God, that are under the power of the Holy Spirit, the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is talking about. And so when Paul mentions here then, uh, toward the end in verse 27, that he, the reason why he disciplines his body and the reason why he keeps it under control is because he wants to make sure that after he preaches or after he declares the gospel, that he does not become disqualified. Now, it'd be very easy for us when you just read through the scripture, when you come to verse 27, to read it like you do the rest, you just kind of read it and continue to move on in the chapter 10. And we sometimes can miss some of the really important points in the scripture as we read through it because we're reading in a sense too quickly. That's why reading slowly and thinking about and trying to digest what is being said is really very important. Because when, even though Paul just uses this phrasing here in this verse, he is stating something that is very important to him. It matters to him that he does not become disqualified. That's an important thing. I mean, if you think about it for just a moment, with an individual is running a race, if you do something wrong in the race and you're disqualified, it doesn't matter if you beat everyone else. You're not the winner. You're out. There is no prize. There, there's no reward or award for you as an individual. And then if you kind of back it up just a little bit, if an individual is competing, let's say, in a race for his school, whether it's their high school or for their college, if they then are disqualified, not only are, do they receive no reward, but their track team receives no points. They may lose the championship because that individual was disqualified. So you, what you do affects a lot of other individuals, a lot of other people. So there's a great deal that's at stake. And of course, the disqualification process here that we're talking about is not just what an individual does during a race, but we now know, because it's very common to us, to hear of an individual who's disqualified from a race because of something they had done six months earlier, whether they've been caught for what they call blood doping, or maybe their blood tested positive for having too much testosterone. Uh, they have maybe their steroids, or maybe they have nowadays, they, they may be disqualified because they've tested positive for what's called a masking agent. In other words, uh, it's something that's in your blood that shouldn't be there, but the, but the main reason that would be in your blood is because they're trying to mask the evidence that you've been taking steroids or some performance enhancing drug. 
And so we hear commonly how individuals are stripped of a win, either several weeks or months after a race, or maybe on race day, it's declared that they are disqualified. And so that's a, that's a big deal. It's not some minor thing. Imagine you go through all the pain and the rigorousness of, of a disciplined lifestyle for a year to compete in a race, and then to be told you can't even run because you're disqualified. So there's, a, so there's a great deal at stake here that I believe that Paul wants to communicate. So it matters to Paul, and it should matter to us. So again, verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word disqualified is literally the word cast away. Uh, the root here, uh, the root word means to be tested and to be found trustworthy through battle, one who is reliable. So here, the word that's used is the opposite of that. That's the root. The root means to be tested and found trustworthy. This is the opposite, where the individual is unapproved. They are found to be unworthy or spurious or worthless. It is used really in a passive sense, meaning the individual is disapproved and rejected or cast away. Uh, the word can also be used to mean that the individual is undiscerning. Uh, they have not been distinguishing things that should be distinguished. They are void of judgment. So we want to make sure that we, we really have a good handle on what Paul is talking about here. That again, this is not some minor thing. This is a life-altering kind of disqualification he's talking about. Now again, remember that this race he's talking about is not the race of life where we're trying to earn salvation. And then to be cast away means that you've lost your salvation or that you cannot be saved. That is not what he's speaking about. And even in some commentaries where they seem to have gotten the context correct, when it comes to the application of verse 27, they slip right back into this idea that somehow the individual has become disqualified for heaven or they've been disqualified for their salvation. And so we want to make sure we remain consistent. Paul is not talking about that. So this is not an individual losing uh, their salvation. We can lose rewards. Uh, and there's something else here that I want to really point uh, or kind of point out today that I think is should be most important to us when it comes to being disqualified. But again, there is a, so there is a possible uh, possibility for you and I to lose uh, in the Christian life. We, we can lose rewards. And I think also uh, what's most important is we can lose influence. We can lose influence with others. And that's really, really important. I've, I know I've brought this up several times over the past many years in different contexts because it really jumps out at me when I read through uh, the Word of God, and it comes to you and I losing our ability to influence others. We're not talking about trying to sell people a, a used car or a new car or a house or trying to convince people to do this or do that. Uh, my concern, and I do believe that the concern of the Word of God, is when we lose our influence to be able to influence an individual for their spiritual good. If it's a non-believer, it's to influence an individual to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the person's a believer, it's the ability to influence them to uh, take seriously their walk with the Lord or to pursue further study of the Word of God or to uh, maybe to encourage them to consider to live in obedience to what God has said, maybe in spite of maybe some very difficult circumstance. And when it, so when it comes to losing influence, I think that what we also need to be thinking about is there are times, and, and I, there's no percentage to put on this, but it's just something that we know is generally true. There are times that an individual can lose their ability to influence others for a brief period of time. And there are those who can lose their ability to influence for 
maybe many years or many decades, depending on the seriousness of what has taken place. There are certain athletes that you and I probably have already forgotten about that would have had maybe terrific careers, but because of something they had done that disqualified them, disqualified them from an entire career of athletics and all that goes with that. There are individuals who have done some things that disqualified them from a certain game or from a, a couple of games. And so we, we kind of forget about that. I, I guess an easy illustration would be uh, in an NBA a final series, there may be a couple of individuals uh, from opposing teams who get in kind of a, a shoving match, maybe a fight, and they're both suspended for one or two games. But they're still able to play uh, most of the games in the final series. And so there may be some effect on, on the series, but it seems to be minimal. But that's different from the individual who, let's say, is drafted into the NBA or the NFL, and something takes place that disqualifies them, and you never hear of them again. They never, they're never able to, to step on the field of competition because of what has happened. So their ability to influence the outcome of a game or their ability to influence the future of a team is now gone. And of course, that pales in comparison. Uh, the illustration I, I like to use the most often, the one that should be the, the nearest and the dearest to our hearts, for those of us who are parents, is you don't want to lose the ability to influence your children for the Lord. That, that to me would be the most devastating uh, thing to ever hear from the Lord on Judgment Day or to find out or to discover uh, that, you were, that you were unable to influence them for the Lord. And I do think that as we think about this today, that we should be thinking about just that. Ask yourself some of these questions. Do you find that you are at this point in time maybe a little frustrated with your inability to really influence anyone else in spiritual matters. Not that when you enter a room, people suddenly see you as being godly and they fall on their knees and begin to repent. We're not talking about some kind of a mystical, magical kind of presence. But have you, have you been frustrated by your inability at times to maybe turn conversations successfully to weightier matters? Have, have you found yourself unable when you're trying to uh, perhaps communicate to someone the gospel, you've been frustrated by your inability to really get them to think seriously about spiritual things. Now, now there may be other reasons why that's taking place. I'm just asking you to evaluate where you are as an individual. That perhaps, in some cases, for some of you, and I know it's been this way for me at times, that when I look at my, uh, some, some times where I have failed, where I've been unable to maybe influence certain individuals, maybe those that I care about deeply, it's because I've become disqualified. I've allowed sin to remain undealt with in my life. I've not been as disciplined as I should have been in my walk with the Lord. And as a result, my ability to influence, the, the inner strength, the, the sense of integrity that I should have, it's gone. The Lord is involved in every aspect of our lives. And I believe he's also involved in my ability to project integrity and therefore have influence on others. But he's also involved in maybe preventing me from being used in the lives of others because I'm not in a, maybe it's a moral position to be able to help that individual because of something that's happening in my life. And so that's the kind of things I think that Paul 
is talking about here. Now, what we want to make sure that we don't rest in is this. This is a, I don't often quote from the Apocrypha, uh, but I am going to quote from the Apocrypha this morning. Uh, and it reads this way. There is such a thing as a man who is wise and teaches many, and yet is unprofitable to himself. Now, the reason why I read that is because sometimes what happens is an individual may have some things in their life that they're not really addressing, and, and they know that they're not. They've, you've suddenly thought about those things, even now as you're listening. There's maybe some sinful things, maybe not what we would consider gravely sinful, but nonetheless things that you know that you probably should address. But what you're resting on is that, well, but you know, I, I know that I'm still reading my Bible, and I, I teach my children, I teach Sunday school, um, I've been sharing Christ with my neighbor, and so you're using those things as evidence that you're okay. But you may not be okay. And then I would add to that, that not only do you, have you become unprofitable to yourself, but it's even possible in that, that you're not as profitable as you should be to those others that you're ministering to. That you're going to continue to come short. And you may be unaware of it. You don't know how far it can go, but still there's that possibility because you're not living and walking as you ought to. Again, the word disqualified or the word cast away is from a technical word that was used in the Greek games. Again, it refers to uh, disqualifying a runner because he had broken training rules. He was barred from competing for the prize. And so again, Paul was apprehensive that if he did not live a life of separation from the world, if he did not live a victorious life over sin, God would disqualify him. And that is, take away from him his position as apostle to the Gentiles, which what we're talking about is his position of being able to influence really untold thousands for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, a Christian sometimes may wonder after years of fruitful service why he should suddenly see his usefulness gone and his life powerless and without the joy of the Lord. That can happen to those who've been in ministry for years who have ministered faithfully and then all of a sudden it seems that they're not as effective as they, as they were before. I don't think it has anything to do with age. I don't think it has anything to do with mental capacity or ability. I think it may be at least in some cases that the individual has kind of been slacking off in, in living life as they ought to be living. So again, the question that I want to ask you this morning is, do you have the spiritual impact on others that you should? The, the spiritual impact that you think that you should. Remember that every single one of us as believers has been called to ministry. It is the responsibility of all of us to glorify the Lord with our lives. It is the responsibility of all of us to make the name of Christ known. It is the responsibility of all of us to carry the gospel with us wherever we go and to share Christ. We all have that responsibility. There is the desire of God that all of us, because that's what he means by the church, that all of us are to have an impact on others spiritually. You know, Paul refers to these breaking of the training rules in other places. Let me read them to you. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, and also for the life to come. So there's that 
imagery again, the, the training of the body, being disciplined, not allowing yourself to become distracted, not getting involved in the wrong thing. Why? So that you can have greater value, so that you can have this life of godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, basically Paul says that if a Greek athlete is to be awarded the garland of victory, he must strive lawfully. That is, he must live up to the requirements that are prescribed for the preparation which makes uh, the, the athlete, which makes his life that he lives uh, uh, capable and, and uh, he's qualified to live or to compete in that race. Now, when it comes to this, I want us to think on two levels, and we'll finish up with this. Well, we won't finish up with this. There'll be one more thing after this, but nonetheless, the two things are this. We want to think of this as individuals, which is what I've been talking about primarily this morning, but also we need to think about this corporately. There is the idea throughout the scripture that this is something that all of us are to be concerned about as individuals and collectively. That's where, you know, that's, we're going to be holding each other accountable because we also represent each other, the body of Christ. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul's concern, he's going to a church, to a group of believers, and he wants to see them standing side by side. There's great merit in that. There's great strength in that. Uh, again, as you and I even share Christ with individuals, it is not unusual that then when they meet our Christian friends or when they come in a gathering of other believers, when they see us, in essence, standing side by side, singing of the faith, worshiping Christ, loving and serving each other, that collective strength has an impact on them and further lends credibility to what we've already shared with them. And so there's, there's an important aspect to this that, yes, we are to strive for these things individually, but corporately as well. Over in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Again, he says labored with. That's from a Greek word that's used of athletes contending in concert, kind of like a team effort uh, against the opposition for the prize that's offered. And so that's very much something that's been commanded to us by God is this corporate identity and working together, again, and not standing in individualized isolation. Again, there is, you know, there's no such thing as the isolated Christian. There's no such thing as you and I being called to live the Christian life alone. We are to strive, but again, it's together. And God has created the body of Christ for that reason, to enhance that, to strengthen us uh, and to enable us. In Romans 15, verse 30, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So again, strive together. It's from a Greek word, which refers to, the again, the concerted action of a group of athletes who work in harmony against the opposition. So again, the uh, root of that word is where we get our word agony. And so again, there's this idea that we are agonizing together trying to go against the work of the evil one. So what we have here are instances where first century Christians were striving in concert for the faith of the gospel, where some had labor with Paul uh, in the extension of the gospel, also where others were exhorted to strive in concert with Paul in prayer, 
and then where still others were having conflict, that is, they were enduring persecution, uh, and the case of, as well as the case of Paul, where he fought the good fight, where they fought the good fight together. All of these varied activities of the Christian life were referred to by two Greek words being used of the athlete, again, that's engaged in intense, intense competition. Uh, and again, the idea was that they were to strive together. And these first century Christians, many of them, they didn't have an ancestry of a Christian heritage. There was no, there were, there were not any, there weren't centuries of Christian practice and tradition to encourage them. Most of them were saved out of paganism, and yet they lived their Christian lives with an intensity of purpose, which puts us, I believe, often to shame. So the secret of all of this is the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which results in a conscience that is sensitive to the slightest sin, the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ himself of our lives, and a love for him finds expression in a life of intense and purposeful service in his name. So there's one more thing I want to address, and then I really will be done. And that is this, because this is true for many of us on varying levels. What have you failed? What have you stumbled along the way? What if you have been disqualified? Maybe you're now, even in your life, ashamed to open your mouth and tell others about the gospel because you failed so miserably. You are ashamed. Uh, maybe even let others know you even go to church or believe the Bible as it's written because of the way you're living your life even now. What about those who failed? Well, let me read to you from Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here we get a glimpse of Paul's knowledge of racing, so to speak. He talks about the runner pressing toward the mark for the prize. That is, he is pursuing toward the mark. He is forgetting everything else. He is not allowing himself to be distracted so that he can reach forward. Forgetting is really, uh, some have said in their commentaries on talking about this word, really means completely forgetting. The idea is, is that if someone is running a race, especially a sprint, but we've even seen this in, in mile races or 5K races, is that if you become aware of the runners behind you, or most definitely, if you turn your head to see how close they are, they will run right by you. And the way that you win the race, especially if you're in front, is to keep your eyes forward, forget about the other runners, and continue to press on and strive towards the finish line that's before you. And that's what he's talking about. Except here, what, the way that we're using this, and what Paul, uh, the way that Paul is using this, is the individual has, they've messed up. They have perhaps fallen. They have perhaps uh, been disqualified, or, and they've already been penalized, and they've overcome all of that. And what he's saying is, is forget about that. Remember that when it comes to our sins, we have been forgiven. That you and I cannot change the past. Yes, it's true, we make amends when we can, but that would never make up for what we've done. That would never put us in a position to be forgiven by God or to be forgiven by Christ. As a believer, we've been forgiven. So we have the freedom and the right to forget, 
about the past. Yes, you learn your lessons from the past, but you don't let it linger. You don't let it hamper or, or, or cause, you know, bring you down. The freedom that we are offering others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to experience and live out every day ourselves and experience the great freedom that comes with that. And so we can, we can press forward. Remember that what the message we're giving them and what we live in light of is that it's not just that Jesus Christ came and died for their sin. He died for my sin. He did not just die so that they could be washed completely clean of their sins and stand before God dressed in the righteousness of Christ. I stand before God dressed in the righteousness of Christ. It is not only that they then can be free of guilt as well as the, uh, the sin itself. I can stand before Christ and I do stand before Christ free of that guilt. And when I tell them that Christ has been raised on the third day and that gives evidence that God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ, that gives evidence to me that God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ and that my sins are forgiven. And that I am free. And I do have the right and the freedom to forget what lies behind me and to press forward. This week, I don't know where I got it from as far as who posted it first. It's one of those Facebook things. There's a few things redeeming about Facebook. Uh, but it's a quote from Dr. Uh, John Piper. And I just think it's really very good, especially in light of what we've talked about today. And it reads this way. Occasionally, weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. So in light of what we're talking about today, this is not just lost opportunities and the career I could have had. It's not that at all. Weep deeply over the life you hoped you would, uh, the, over the life you hoped would be, the life of the believer, the life of the victorious believer, the life of the one who's influencing others for Christ, and your life hasn't been all of that. And we, we weep over that. Grieve the losses of opportunities that I had to share the gospel of Christ with others, to disciple others, to pour my life into other people. I can't get those things back and I should grieve heavily over that. But I can't make up for that. I can't go back in time. Because of Christ... I can literally wash my face and I can trust God that all is not lost and that there is still much for me to be able to accomplish in him. And I can embrace the life I have left, whether it is three years, five years, 10 years, 20, or what have you. I can embrace that life and I can then pursue and live this disciplined life that Paul was talking about and run that race with great joy Looking forward to that day when I will hear Jesus say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness and your loving kindness and for your willingness, Father, to forgive us in Christ for all of our past failures. Father, for many of us believers, our minds sometimes are filled with many times where we have been disqualified. For many of us, and maybe for most of us, on the scheme of things, they were minor disqualifications. We've not been disqualified from running the race at all. 
we've not been disqualified we were, we, where we will never have any influence over, over anyone again. Even though for some of us our circle of influence has shrunk, there are still those that we care for deeply. Our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, close friends and neighbors. Father, I pray that first of all, that each one of us would strongly desire to want to be used by you to influence them for Christ. In any way you see fit, great or small, it matters not. And I pray, Lord, that you would burden our hearts with the, with the wonderful burden of their soul. And they would strive for that. And we pray, Lord, that as you change our hearts and move us in that way, that you would give to us the desire and the strength that we need to pursue that, that kind of life, to, to leave sin behind, to not be distracted, to not get caught up in all the wrong things, to think as a Christian. Remember, Lord, that it is our, the primary responsibility of our life, which is to glorify God and to make the name of Christ known wherever we go. Help us, Father, to do that. And I do pray, Father, for those this morning who may not know Christ. Father, they may have a myriad of regrets. And I pray, Lord, that those regrets would weigh heavy on their hearts and minds. And I pray that they would find no relief until they realize that the only relief that they can truly have is by coming to Christ and that by believing in Christ and accepting the gift of salvation from Christ, only then can they experience true release, absolute forgiveness that comes as we submit ourselves to you. So Father, we thank you. We love you so much, Father, for your undying love for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.